as to sort of public disclosure, one of the things I think that, uh, you know, that, that's clear from, uh, from recent history is that when you have disclosure of information to, uh, to the public, uh, that's where you have threats and retributions and, um, and attacks on people because of their, uh, their uh, expression and their association with others. There were death threats made against uh, people at AFP, um, and there were, were threats made against a whole lot of organizations uh, that, were, that supported us in this case by filing briefs in support of us. That was Casey Maddox. I'm Dwayne Lester, and this is Top Priority. Welcome to Top Priority, a production of the Americans for Prosperity Foundation's Grassroots Leadership Academy. I'm Dwayne Lester. Today's top priority is free expression. Specifically, we're going to be talking about a recent Supreme Court case that went in favor of free expression and Americans for Prosperity Foundation. We're talking with Casey Maddox. Casey is the Vice President of Legal and Judicial Strategy at Americans for Prosperity Foundation and a Senior Fellow of Free Speech and Peace at the Charles Koch Institute. In the following conversation, we talk about the origins of the case and Casey explains how this may be the most important free speech case in the last 60 years. I hope you enjoy this conversation as much as I do. Americans for Prosperity Foundation made news not that long ago, winning a Supreme Court case. Uh, it was a First Amendment case. And to be honest, I, I know a little bit about it, but not as much as I want. And I would wager that a lot of, uh, a lot of the people out there who are interested in it uh, are in the same boat. So Casey Maddox is joining us today. Thank you for taking the time. And would you mind going back clear to the beginning with how this case started and then kind of just walk us through till the final verdict. Sure thing, Dwayne. Uh, glad to be on. Um, so the Americans for Prosperity Foundation uh, versus Bonta, as the case uh, was decided by the Supreme Court, um, is a perhaps one of the most important now uh, freedom of association and free speech cases that the Supreme Court has decided in about 50 or 60 years. It's that important. Um, and I'll, I'll walk you through kind of how we got to this place and what the court decided. But basically about seven and a half, eight years ago, uh, the Attorney General of California had decided that they were going to start demanding that charities that solicit in the state of California uh, seek, uh, seek support from, uh, from people in the state would be required to submit their, uh, their IRS forms that included the list of everyone uh, who had given over a certain amount to those organizations. And so they would have to submit those to the Attorney General of California. That was a uh, unique request from California. That's not something that other states had been doing. Uh, and California also had a, a history, as we were able to demonstrate at, at trial in this case, um, of uh, failing to keep those, those documents private. And so they had been disclosed to other people online um, hundreds of organizations had had that experience where those, those had been, uh, the, the lists of their supporters had been, uh, had been disclosed. 
uh, we challenged uh, challenged this along with a number of other organizations. Uh, there are actually two cases that the Supreme Court decided here, Americans for Prosperity Foundation versus Bonta and the Thomas More Law Center versus Bonta, and that's because uh, there was another case that was moving along with us at the same time. There were some other cases that were also pending um, from other organizations concerned about this. And so, uh, you know, the, the uh, concern here is, is over what's often referred to as, as uh, donor privacy. Um, but it's really fundamentally a, a question of freedom of association or, or associational privacy broadly, uh, whether people have the freedom to be able to associate around shared ideas and not have the government um, seek information about your associations and publish, uh, in some cases, those associations for others uh, who can then attack the people who are, uh, you know, for, for their exercise of, of those freedoms. And so uh, that's what this case really was about. Uh, we won in the trial court uh, after a, a full trial, uh, which is relatively rare in First Amendment cases to have a, a First Amendment trial, but we had a full trial, had a very strong record that we were able to develop in the in the trial court, went to the Ninth Circuit where we lost, and the Supreme Court decided 6-3 in support of uh, Americans for Prosperity Foundation and, and Thomas More Law Center holding that, um, that uh, this was an unconstitutional demand uh, being being placed on us, and so we're free uh, not to have to follow that uh, uh, that requirement from California at this point. So help me understand: Did they ever explain why they wanted this information? Because it is such an unusual request that other states aren't doing. How did they justify it? What did they say? That's a it's a good question. So there, the justification for it has been uh, uh, trying to prohibit or, or ensure against charitable fraud. Uh, and a brief filed by 22 state attorneys general makes the point that, look, we're, we're concerned, you know, speaking for them, they're concerned about charitable fraud too. Um, but uh, there's a, a reason why the other states don't uh, have this sort of dragnet requirement. And it's that if you think there is actual fraud going on, you can go, go uh, request the information at that point about that one particular organization, not have a warehouse of information about uh, the the names, addresses, and uh, and contribution level of people all over the country. This isn't just in California. This is California collecting information about people and their addresses and their information all over the country uh, who support charities in California uh, or who support charities. Period. Because this is these can include charities that um, you know that are well outside of California, but have one or more donors inside California and therefore have to, uh, to file uh, with the state. Um, and so you could be looking at a, you know, at a charity that's based uh, on the East Coast. Most of its supporters are on the East Coast, but if they have some supporters in California, California is pulling all of that information in. And the, the uh, other attorneys general made the point that they're concerned about charitable fraud too. You don't need this information. And as a matter of fact, at trial, it was clear that uh, as the, the district court had found and the Supreme Court noted, uh, there's just no uh, history of the use of this information for that purpose. So, uh, you know, that's really kind of what was at the core of this case. California was saying that they needed this information for prohibiting, uh, uh, for ensuring against fraud. Uh, we said they didn't. And the question was whether it mattered that California wasn't really able to make that make that showing, uh, the, whether or not they had to show this was narrowly tailored, right? So, uh Prohibiting fraud is something that's a legitimate reason that government should be able to act. Um, California had chosen to attempt to prohibit fraud by creating this rule. Uh, 
and the question was whether the means that they had chosen was actually narrowly tailored to the uh, you know the admittedly good end that they were attempting to accomplish. Uh, California said, well, we don't have to have it narrowly tailored. All we have to do is make sure that we have a good reason, and then we can basically do whatever we want. And the Supreme Court said that's not how it works. Um, and, and so that's really kind of fundamentally how we won this case. And, and the importance of this case is that when you impose a rule like this, when the government imposes something like this, it can't just come up with a facially good justification. It has to actually show that the means that it has chosen to achieve that uh, are, are actually tailored to achieving that interest and not too broad. Help me understand how donating to a charity is a First Amendment case. Because when, when you look at it at first, it, it's, not, it's not as clear. Right. Well, you know, it's, uh, this kind of really goes back six decades worth. Um, the, the, the origins of understanding this point uh, go all the way back to the NAACP v. Alabama case, where uh, the, the court and, and the set of cases in the 1960s where the Supreme Court was looking at this question of uh, attempts to go after the, uh, the membership list and the donations to the NAACP uh, from states in, in the South uh, during that time period. And the Supreme Court said, look, you, you, can't, uh, you can't go and get their, their membership lists. And then the court also recognized that, that uh, a, a list of the people who contribute to an organization is uh, in many ways tantamount to the same thing. Uh, it's the, the list of people who support the organization. And so for the exact same reason that you have a right uh, to, to say we have the freedom to associate without giving the government a list of all the people that, uh, that form our association. We have a, a freedom to be able to associate around those ideas uh, by contributing to them without the government having uh, just the, the complete carte blanche to be able to demand uh, the list of that information. So that, that freedom to associate is really kind of the core piece. There's multiple ways people associate. You can do it sort of in person in an association in your church in your civic organization uh, whatever it looks like uh, it can also be financially that people have bound together over a shared commitment uh, and uh, support that commitment through an organization so it sounds like what you're saying is that as Americans or as as you know humans with natural rights we have the right to gather together we have the right to assemble without reporting to the government that we're assembling and who's actually assembling. When you take that a step further, you're saying that a, a list of donors is another example of assembly and that the government does not have a base, I don't want to say a right, but they, they, they have no authority to demand that list because it is a violation of the same rights that we have by assembling in person. That, that's exactly right. Uh, you know, at just about every right that we have, uh, there is uh, at, at some level the government can assert enough of an interest and enough of a, of a justification to overcome it. Um, but what they can't do here and what California was trying to do here was to basically uh, sort of brush the, uh, the constitutional freedom aside completely uh, and say we have the right to just go gather all of this information. Um, as opposed to, you know, for example, if you, if you think that a charitable organization is engaged in fraud uh, and you want to subpoena the information about that organization because you have a, a valid reason for believing that there is something going on, uh, then they can certainly do that. But California had some of this information from a number of charities and, and was not even using it for this purpose themselves. 
Uh, and so it was clear that what was really happening was this kind of warehousing of information and then a, a frequent leaking of that information uh, to other people. Let's set aside the, the constitutional rights aspect of this and just discuss the danger here. What is, what is the opposition outside of, of just the constitutional rights aspect? Is What's the problem with the government having this information? Yeah, you know, I think there's uh, uh, kind of a, a couple of concerns here, and I'll give you one example of an organization that I think really kind of um, brings this home. So one of the important things the Supreme Court said in this case uh, is that disclosure to government officials alone can be sufficiently chilling. Uh, and that's something that most people believed was, was true of the way that the, the court understood the First Amendment, but um, it was, was helpful to have the court spell that out specifically here. What that means is even if you're not talking about having to disclose to um, or the, the government disclosing your information, your name, your address, who you contribute to to third parties, it's still problematic in the sense that it will chill people in the exercise of their freedoms if they know that, uh, you know, that that list is going to be provided to the government. Say, for example, you're you've decided to contribute to the Communist Party um, or, you know, or, or some similar organization, right? Um, there are obviously people who uh, would be concerned that their name being on a list, even if it's going to be held by, by government officials, would put them uh, in, in some kind of jeopardy. And so it's sufficiently chilling. The government has to then justify access to the information. It can't just say, well, it's only going to the government, so you have nothing to fear. Um, so that was an important, uh, an important piece uh, of the decision. But as to sort of public disclosure, one of the things I think that... Uh, you know, that, that's clear from, uh, from recent history is that when you have disclosure of information to, uh, to the public, uh, that's where you have threats and retributions and, um, and attacks on people because of their, uh, their uh, expression and their association with others. There were death threats made against uh, people at AFP. Um, and there were, were threats made against a whole lot of organizations uh, that, were, that supported us in this case by filing briefs in support of us. And I'll give you one example of one of the, the groups that supported us. Because so, many, so often this, uh, this issue is perceived of as one of, you know, sort of one group of Americans uh, who uh, disagree with another group of Americans and would tweet negative things about you or would say negative things about you, right? And it's, it's often perceived in those ways. Um, there's a, a brief uh, by the Citizens Power Initiatives of China, which is a C3 organization in the United States that uh, raises awareness of human rights abuses in China. And the, the founder of that organization was actually at Tiananmen Square, lives in the US. Uh, and the point that he was able to make in his amicus brief is that you know, for, for an organization like that, if they provide the, the list of the people who contribute to that organization uh, to the Attorney General of California, the worry isn't just that, um, you know, one, that some, you know, sort of teenage hacker in a basement somewhere might go access that information and uh, tweet about it and people may say negative things about you. Uh, it's that the Chinese Communist Party would actually go and get that information uh, from the Attorney General of, of California. They would hack in and get that information, do whatever they had to do to get it, and that uh, people's lives would actually be on the line if that happened, because it's not, 
you know, other other Americans who would be saying negative things about you on, on Twitter. It's a nation state uh, who is does not like the people who are saying negative things about it. And so, um, you know, I think that's a, a sort of a chilling, but uh, but vivid indicator of what really is at stake in, in some of these issues. There seems to be a short-sightedness about this with some of some of the parties involved too. And, and, and it's not just in this case, I see this, you know, across the country, this, this belief that we can do this now because our team's in power and that's, it's always going to be safe, but there's always going to be that threat, that danger that somebody who might not have your best interest in mind will someday take the reins and they will abuse that, that yeah. data, which may have been, you know, you may have seen it as safe at one time. Now it isn't. And I hadn't even considered yeah. the, the, the lives of people who are, you know, free in this country, but have family back in China. Yeah. That's, that is right. a powerful, powerful uh, idea of, of why that list should not be in the, the hands of government. You said earlier that this was one right. of the most important First Amendment cases, and I think you said 60 years. Can you help me understand why? Sure. Uh, you, know, if it's, you know, if you imagine what would have happened had we lost this decision, I think that maybe is, is you know, kind of the, the most vivid um, example that you can have if you, if you just try to imagine what would have happened. Uh, California was, you know, one of the only states during the, the time this has been going on, a couple of other states have sort of taken up Cal- California's mantle and at least uh, started indicating that they were going to start collecting the same information. But um, it was relatively fresh. Had the Supreme Court decided this case the other direction, I think you would have seen a number of states and a lot of uh, more attempts on the federal level to try to demand these same sorts of disclosures. And the, the reason that's problematic is that, you know, what, what really makes America uh, strong is the fact that we have a uh, healthy civil society um, where people are able to associate around shared ideas in the C3, four, C3 context, in the C4 context, um, you know, to, uh, you know, on the grassroots side, which AFP works on, but also just in the C3 context to associate around shared ideas and foster those ideas. Um, and this would have really undermined that. We, we showed uh, polling that showed that about half of the people who contribute to charitable organizations uh, around the country uh, would not con- continue to contribute to those organizations if, uh, if their contributions were going to be disclosed. And so this could have really had a, an incredibly damaging effect on uh, the charitable sector, on uh, organizations that, uh, that you know, sort of make up part of the fabric of this country, the ability to associate around and advocate for uh, for ideas and causes that are important to you. And so uh, it, it, it was kind of really fundamental. Um, and, you know, and, and I think that's why you saw nearly 300 organizations filed uh, briefs in support of us at the Supreme Court. And it was, uh, I think, the most diverse set. I'm actually, I'm quite confident in this. I think it's the most diverse group of organizations in support of any one constitutional cause uh, that the Supreme Court has ever seen. So it wasn't just 300 far-right organizations, because that's what I've read. Yeah, this is, uh, I'll give you a quote. This is from, uh, from Chief, Jeff- Chief Justice Roberts in his opinion, um, because he, he noted just how wide uh, the array of organizations were that were supporting us here. He said, the gravity of the privacy concerns in this context is further underscored 
by the filings of hundreds of organizations as amici curiae in support of the petitioners. Far from representing uniquely sensitive causes, these organizations span the ideological spectrum and indeed the full range of human endeavors. From the American Civil Liberties Union to the Proposition 8 Legal Defense Fund, from the Council on American-Islamic Relations to the Zionist Organization of America, from Feeding America Eastern Wisconsin to PBS Reno. Uh, and you know, I think that it, it really kind of demonstrates we're talking about right-left um, you know, ideological enemies and even organizations that you would think of as not ideologically, um, you know, anywhere, right? Uh, uh, you know, feeding America, Eastern Wisconsin. Uh, we had ballets, we had sorority sisters and nuns uh, in this, uh, supporting us in this case. It was really an incredibly uh, broad group of organizations, uh, both politically and, and sort of, you know, even things that you would think of as, as non-ideological, but understanding the importance of making sure that uh, the people who support them not be, uh, not be outed uh, and discouraged from associating around uh, the causes that they support. Have you seen any kind of impact from this ruling already? We have. Uh, so New York State, for example, had uh, had taken a, a similar step as California. New York has announced that it is suspending that effort. Um, so that's kind of the, the immediate first impact. Um, I do think this is going to have a significant impact on the issues that uh, that our activists have, have worked on in the states where, uh, and at the federal government, for that matter, where there are similar kinds of demands uh, for information like this. And I think this decision... Um, is uh, you know calls into question uh, the constitutionality of those demands in a way that we would have said that they were unconstitutional before. This helps us to be able to make that case much more clearly that the Supreme Court has recently weighed in on this, uh, and the the demands that we fight against uh, the Constitution is, is at our back. And so uh, I I think that's that's going to have a, a significant impact. But the you know this uh, the the point I was just making I think is is maybe the um, you know, the, the most important way I think this case will have an impact, uh, particularly for grassroots in the, uh, in the time to come, is that we have, uh, have so often been working to try to, to demonstrate the breadth of the concerns here, that this is not a right-wing concern, this is not just an us concern, this is a concern that people across the ideological spectrum and beyond have. And merely having the 300 or so different organizations from uh, you know filing briefs in this case helps to be able to make that uh, make that case going forward when we see these sorts of demands come up in your state and uh, at the federal level uh, we'll now be able to point to you know not just promises that there really are people who support us here um, but uh, you know dozens of briefs by hundreds of organizations that took the same position we did in this case. And I think that's going to have a lot of impact going forward. Thanks again to Casey Maddox for taking the time to talk to us about this important case. And if you have any questions about free expression or any of the other priority initiatives we've talked about, please feel free to send me an email at toppriority at afphq.org. And if you haven't left a review for the podcast, please take a few minutes and leave a review on whatever service you listen to us on. Until next time, take care and we'll see you then.